You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on February 19th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And I can see that we have a whole bunch of questions that um, were saved up from a previous time. So let's see, where should we go first? I have a question here from Mikhail. Is sociology a real science? Can it predict something? That's an interesting question. So places where science has probably been most famously successful are in physical sciences, predicting things originally, it was motion of planets, then it was all kinds of things about the physical world. That's a place where where mathematics, where, where, where science aided by mathematics has been, has been very successful. Actually, I noticed one thing, I'm sorry, I need to do a little change here uh, because we forgot something. Um, okay, the, uh, um, in, uh, so the, 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 um, the question is, what about doing science where the entities you're dealing with aren't planets or atoms, they're people, and one's trying to deal with understanding what happens in kind of the, the social world and so on? Can one make a, a science of the same quality, so to speak, as something like physical science when the elements one's dealing with are things like people? You know, back a long time ago, I think it was in the early 1800s, there was this idea that there will be a social physics that would be kind of the analog of uh, sort of the laws of mechanics and things that one has in physics about, you know, force equals mass times acceleration, all those kinds of things, that there will be laws like that that would govern social processes, just as there are laws that govern physical processes. Well, there were various theories, there are various theories that have sometimes had grand and not very positive consequences for the way the world is organized, um, that uh, there would be sort of a grand theory of how those kinds of things would work, but it doesn't really pan out. You know, when you look at it kind of on the ground and you say, are the things that people do somehow predictable or or are they fundamentally less predictable than things in physics? The actual practical experiences, they're remarkably predictable in many ways. Like for example, if you look at people visiting websites, you get you know, billions of data points of people clicking on these pieces of websites and going from here to there and all that kind of thing. And you can make all kinds of curves that show you know, the average time people spend on this part of a website and how they move to other parts and so on. And you look at those aggregate curves and they're very smooth curves. They have very definite forms. And you compare those curves with the curves that you would measure in some physics experiment with particles or some other thing. And actually those curves often look much scratchier than the curves you get from looking at how humans behave when they're visiting websites and so on. So that kind of makes one think gosh, there should be some kind of analog of a social physics or something that will tell one things about sort of the general principles for, for the operation of, of, of what humans do, um, either individually or collectively. But, uh, and, and there are some sort of 
rules of thumb that are known, but we don't really have the same kind of framework that we have for something like physics in understanding those types of things. I mean, I suppose an area that is uh, sort of in the middle of these kinds of things is economics, um, where there's sort of a question of uh, what, uh, what is the role of economics as a science-like thing? And so, you know, if you look at a typical economics textbook, there'll be a fair amount about sort of the mechanisms by which the world exchanges money and so on. There'll be a fair amount about the history of, you know, when people left the gold standard, what happened in, very, in the Great Depression, these kinds of things are sort of a story of what's actually happened in economics. And there'll be a small amount of theory about economics. And that theory, what is the character of that theory? That's an interesting question, because it's often sort of mocked by physical scientists, because in economics, you'll see, you know, there's this curve. Oh, it, it, it goes, you know, the demand for a product there's sort of some elasticity of demand and you'll, you'll draw a curve and it'll go up and it'll come down again. And somebody will say, what does the curve really look like? You know, how can you fill in the exact data points and know exactly what the curve looks like? And people say, we don't really know what the curve exactly looks like. Well, the interesting thing is it often doesn't matter exactly what the curve looks like because what you're really trying to get out of uh, economic reasoning, so to speak, is a, a sort of chain of explanation, a chain of sort of logical deduction which just says, well, if you charge more, fewer people will buy the product, those kinds of things. And well, you know, that's a different question from if you charge 5% more, will 2.7% less people buy the product, those kinds of things. It's something where there's a, there's a form of kind of reasoning about what's going to happen that isn't, doesn't have quite the same kind of uh, perfect mathematical quality that one's used to in things like physics. Now, there are areas of... Uh, of economics where uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, sort of places where one uses uh, statistical models in economics and where one can say, well, there's this number and this curve and so on and so on and so on. And one can try and make some statistical predictions about what's going to happen based on that. But I would say that a lot of kind of economic reasoning is more at the level of something more like logical deduction than it is a sort of it's quantitatively informed logical deduction more so than it is kind of something like physics, where we write down an equation and we solve it. Um, now, it's an interesting question uh, when you look at a, you know, a, a textbook of sort of fancy mathematical style economics, and it has all kinds of equations, and there are all kinds of solutions to things, and it's, it's all sorts of complicated things are going on. And you say, what really is this? Is it something that is like an axiomatic theory, like in, in some area of mathematics, where we say, assume that consumers have the property that if things cost more, they buy less of them. Assume that consumers have this kind of rational behavior property. Assume this and that and the other, where we can sort of define the world by a set of axioms and then build on top of that, this very elaborate kind of mathematical structure of seeing what the consequences are. Is that what it's doing? Or is it more something that's like statistical models where you say, we observe the following thing and you can fit this curve by this sort of two parameter uh, thing and so on. W where does it lie in those things? And I think that's a, not completely clear. Um, and I think pe probably people, different people have different views about, about the way to think about that. So, you know, a question that comes up in sort of these kinds of things that comes up certainly in economics is, can you predict things? Is it, a, is it a kind of activity, a kind of intellectual domain in which prediction makes sense? 
Can you say something like, you know, if a government spends an extra trillion dollars on a stimulus thing for this, then inflation will do this? Is that a predictable thing? Or is that something which is only sort of an after the fact where we can tell a story about why it happened? I think that um, uh, it is one thing to understand is that not all forms of science are, uh, is the key issue, you know, predict what's going to happen. In fact, that idea about how, what, how science works is an idea that's specific to very particular kinds of science uh, that, that happened to be popular uh, starting about 300 years ago. I mean, so if we look at different kinds of science and what sciences have predictions versus what sciences work in different ways, it's sort of interesting. I mean, in, in physics, the big thing was an early thing was, you know, predict where this comet is going to be, predict where this planet is going to be. We write down an equation, we solve the equation, we can figure out, oh, this is where the thing's going to be. Then we come to a field like biology. Well, a dominant theory in biology is the Darwinian theory of natural selection. That isn't really on, it, on its own a predictive theory. It doesn't really say things about, oh, you know, based on this theory, we know that there'll be dinosaurs for a while and then there'll be mammals taking over and so on. Uh, after the fact, we can start saying, well, we can understand why it worked this or that way. We can, we can reason by, by use of that theory, but it isn't a theory which, which immediately gives us, oh, we predict this is gonna happen. Now, there are plenty of other fields that have at least the word science in their name, uh, computer science, for example, not really a, a predictive theory of anything. It's a, insofar as it's sort of a science, it's a science that attempts to understand and reason about computer programs and so on. And, and I think that the, the idea that sort of science is all about, you know, you make a prediction for what's gonna happen, um, that's a very specific type of science. Um, and I think that the, um, another thing to realize is one of the things that's sort of a, a result of work I've done over the course of many decades is this phenomenon of computational irreducibility, that even when you know the rules by which a system operates, even when you've done the most successful thing that physics wants one to do, which is you know, drill down, find the fundamental laws, um, even when you've done that and been successful at that, it can still be the case that to work out how a particular system behaves can be arbitrarily difficult. If it takes the system you know, a billion steps to figure out what it's going to do, you might have no faster way to work it out than follow those billion steps. And I think computational irreducibility is something which uh, th there are only very specific kinds of questions you can ask, even in physics, that don't run into computational irreducibility. And some of the early ones about you know, motion of planets and things like this are ones that, that have this feature, at least in their simple cases, that they don't run into computational irreducibility. When it comes to questions in, let's say, biology, when it comes to questions even about uh, uh, properties of molecules, things like that, one can quickly run into computational irreducibility, at which point it's like, well, yes, you can run the computer simulation and just figure out sort of step-by-step step how the system works. But in terms of having a big sort of, a big sort of theory where you can say, I'm going to uh, sort of put a small amount in and then jump ahead and predict what's going to happen, you're not going to be able to have that. So there's a question in, in sort of the social science area, to what extent even if there were underlying laws that were known, to what extent there's computational irreducibility in how things actually work? To what extent, you know, it, it's, a, it's a question of great interest when people say, let's put in place this policy about how the world should work. Well, what are its consequences going to be? 
Well, we have, you know, if we could do, if we had a perfect social physics, so to speak, we could just say, okay, we tweak this parameter. This is what's going to happen in the world. We can decide if we want that or if we don't want that, but we know what's going to happen. The problem is there are in almost inevitably unexpected consequences. That's kind of a feature of this computational irreducibility idea. You can't sort of know what's going to happen in advance, so you can't guarantee that there won't be unintended consequences. It's the same phenomenon that makes it common for there to be bugs in programs that people write. It's like, well, you think that you're writing this, but there's an unintended consequence that there's, that you consider a bug that's over here. So I, I think that the, um, uh, the, the question of what, um, uh, whether one can imagine in the social domain is one full of computational irreducibility and unable to make sort of predictions beyond just watch what happens and then maybe sort of be able to explain things after the fact, or are there places where you can make predictions? One of the things that's important in science is sort of knowing what, um, what battle to fight. That is, what kind of a thing might you try to predict? You know, I'm, I'm fond of pointing out that um, in Babylonian times, there were uh, sort of three kinds of things that the astrologers thought they might be able to predict. Where planets were going to be the next day, what the weather was going to be like the next day, and whether some king would win or lose a battle the next day. And, you know, it turns out we figured out how to do the planet prediction thing. We're kind of a, a certain distance along the figuring out the weather prediction, but there's a lot of computational irreducibility there. And the winning or losing of battles, well, that's kind of still off the table, so to speak. And, and I think it's, it's kind of the realization that there will be things that science is just not, you know, even if you know the underlying rules, you can't figure out what's going to happen. It's an important realization and kind of understand limitations of science. But one of the things to say is when it comes to sociology, social science, whatever, it's like, what battle are you going to fight? You know, what kinds of things might you talk about where you might be able to have a sensible predictive theory? So for example, uh, you might ask the question, I don't know, uh, let's say you're looking at um, uh, stock markets and you're looking at in economics and you're looking at price fluctuations and you see that, oh, things are roughly sort of randomly going up and down, but there's a long tail here. Can you explain that? Is there a, a predictive theory that explains how long the tail should be? Is there a predictive theory that tells you, oh, if this feature of, of uh, interest rates changes, then this will happen and so on? Um, well, the, 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 the question is, which kinds of questions are you likely to be able to have answers like that to and which are you not? So my guess is that there are a class of questions to which there will be kind of traditional science-like predictive answers. And maybe we know a few of them, but there are probably a lot more. And there are also ones where it's just not going to work. It's a story of computational irreducibility. It's, it's not a thing where you're going to be able to make your traditional kind of science-like predictions. Now, you know, people often say, you know, one day there will be for, for sociology, you know, a, a Newton of, you know, an, an Isaac Newton-like figure. You know, Isaac Newton was famous uh, in, well, most particularly for his book in 1687, um, Principia Mathematica, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, book that uh, kind of really pushed the idea of uh, using mathematics as a way to understand the natural world. People sort of say, maybe one day there'll be a Newton of social physics and all of those web curves and all those things that describe people, there'll be some way of turning those into kind of Newton's laws type, type laws. And um, uh, I think 
that if you pick the right battles, some of that may happen. I think there'll be plenty that where that won't happen. And even in physics, if Newton had said, the thing I'm going to explain is, is the random turbulence in fluids, well, Newton would have been out of luck because his methods and his sort of prediction in science ideas wouldn't have worked. So uh, now, you know, having made all these comments, I, I would say that just as a, as a matter of sort of uh, a footnote, perhaps, I, I, I happen to have been thinking a little bit about economics myself recently. And I'm particularly curious about sort of the, uh, some fundamental questions like what generates value in, you know, what makes things have value and I kind of have a suspicion that there may be some, some very definite scientific things that can be said about that, that revolve around computational irreducibility and so on, that are not things where you're going to be able to say, and I predict the answer will be 7.4, and these kinds of numerical, quantitative, mathematical things, but where you will be able to understand this is, this is why things work this way, and you'll be able to reason in, in somewhat different form about what kinds of things can happen. That was a very long answer to that. Um, okay, let me see. Other kinds of questions here. Well, all right, another rather philosophical one from uh, Gisnoesis. Should we use inductive reasoning in science? That's sort of related to some of the things I was talking about. So first of all, let me explain what inductive reasoning is. So if if you're doing something like mathematics, you can say two plus two, we know the definition of two, we know the definition of plus, we can say two plus two is four. No doubt about it. It's just based on definitions of twos and pluses and things like that. But if we say uh, the, um, um, I don't know, a, um, a star that has been of the size of the sun is going to turn into a white dwarf. Or if we say something about uh, how uh, objects that are, uh, you know, if we, if we throw a ball, it's going to follow this kind of trajectory. Those are not things that we can, in the usual way of thinking about physics, at least, um, that we can just say, by the definition of what we're talking about, by the definition of throwing a ball and so on, we know it's going to follow a parabola. To know it's going to follow a parabola, we have to actually observe how the world is actually built. It's not something that is inevitable just from the definition of terms or sort of a, a purely logical deduction. It's something where we have to deduce from the world what's going to happen. We have to throw balls a bunch of times and notice they all follow parabolas and then say, okay, there's a general law that says that in the world, parabolas are followed when you throw balls. So there's a question of to what extent does that work? To what extent can you say I observe this, I observe this, I observe this, so the next time it's gonna be the same way, I'm going to observe this. In physics, it's worked quite well. In some of kinds of areas of biomedicine and things like that, it's a little bit questionable because it's sort of the basis in a sense for a lot of the way that we think about medicine today. You know, this thing worked for a hundred people. Okay, let's try it on the 101st person. Of course it's gonna work because it worked on a hundred people. Well, Usually, but not always, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, one in X number of people will have this bizarre reaction to this particular drug or some such other thing. Inductive inference, you know, this kind of scientific induction didn't really work. The fact that we saw something work a bunch of times, we tried it again, and by golly, it didn't work the way that it worked before. Now, 
Can we do any better? Probably not. Why didn't it work that 101st time? Well, because that particular person had a different genetic makeup or they had a different, um, uh, you know, they uh, eat many carrots every day and nobody else in the, in the study ate lots of carrots and the drug reacts with, uh, uh, you know, with beta carotene or who, who knows what. I mean, in, in um, um, you know, all kinds of different details can be there. I think that um, uh, one of the questions is when you do an experiment in science, uh, to what extent can you really control the parameters of your experiment? You know, in physics, we tend to be able to do reasonably well in many experiments. We tend to be able to say, we've got this isolated system. It's going to work exactly this way. When we do experiments in biology, it's much more difficult to do that. I mean, we can, we can breed our mice to be, you know, exactly the, the, the same genetics of mice. And they've been raised in exactly the same way. And, you know, they're in this mouse colony. And maybe there's some repeatability in how the mice behave. But when it comes to people, for example, you know, we've all had different, uh, different histories and done different things and, and all those kinds of things. And, and it's not going to be sort of... Uh, you don't have such a controlled setting for doing experiments. And so that means that this idea that just because it worked once, it's going to work again, doesn't necessarily work. Now, is there, any, is there anything better one can do? Not really. That's the best way we know to sort of infer things from, this, from the world is just look at what the world is like and say it's going to be more of the same. That's, that's typically the best thing we can do. Now, sometimes we can say, we can drill down and we can say, this is what the world looks like in these cases. But actually what we know is really going on is this thing underneath. And when we've got the new thing to look at, we can say, let's look at the things going on underneath and see how those, those work. And then maybe we can predict a different thing here. Now, so, so in other words, the, the, um, I mean, there are fields of science. Oh, a, a famous example, history, you know, human history. It's like, can you use inductive inference on human history? Just because something worked that way before, will it work that way again? You know, just because no empire has lasted forever, does that mean that no empire that comes into existence in the future will last forever? Just because we see this or that happen, does it mean history will repeat itself? You know, people are fond of saying, and particularly when they talk about, you know, uh, grand... Uh, innovations in business and so on, they're, they're, they're fond of saying it's different this time. You know, what uh, the stock market is, is going to go up and it's going to keep going up forever. It's different this time. Usually, history does tend to repeat itself. But can we use sort of inductive inference in general to think about sort of historical processes? It's pretty iffy because like dealing with different people in some medical study, you know, there's always different stuff going on. You know, at this time in history, we're able to start, you know, uh, having, talking to people remotely through video conferences and things like that. At this time in history, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the way that, um, uh, the way that some aspect of technology works is different. So it's different now. We're not gonna see the same phenomenon that happened in the middle ages because after all, now uh, people live much longer, technology is much better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that um, there's sort of a, a multiple things going on. Some of that is true that, that there has been sort of change through history, but some parts of it, uh, you know, really human nature so far hasn't changed much 
in, in recorded history. It seems like, you know, the stories one reads from the, the earliest stories about uh, what humans do and do, do with each other and so on is uh, are pretty much the same as what we would see today. Um, and I think the, uh, uh, so th those, are, th th those are sort of drivers of, of success in, 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 in sort of inductive inference for history because the human condition really hasn't changed much, but then there are other things that are different and so on. So I think it's a, it's a complicated issue where one can expect to make use of this kind of idea of, we've seen it that way before, it's gonna be that way again. Now, I will make one footnote to all of this about, about, the, about science and the study of uh, the, the use of inductive inference in science. Um, one of the things that I've been engaged in the last year or two is uh, trying to find a fundamental theory of physics. And it's looking like it's going really, really well. It's looking like we actually have successfully identified what the kind of low level machine code by which the universe operates is. We don't know the details of all the rules, but we know the structure, the formalism by which things can be set up. And so essentially what we're doing is we're reducing physics to mathematics. We're saying, this is the precise machine code for the universe. This is, you know, we have these sort of atoms of space and they're interacting with each other and they have all these, the whole formalism of multi-way graphs and all kinds of things. But in the end, what it's saying is, it's just a formal thing. It's just something where like two plus two equals four, the processes by which space is constructed, time works, black holes are formed, you know, particles exist, all these kinds of things, they're as definite and inexorable as the fact that two plus two equals four. Now, it's, uh, you, you can ask the question, well, what aspects of our universe are kind of necessarily the way they are, and what aspects are kind of like, oh, we were given this universe, not another universe? Uh, you know, what, what aspects with two plus two equals four, we kind of have the idea that just by the definition of two and the definition of plus, the result is inevitable. To what extent is it the case that when it comes to our universe, we can say the same thing, that things are inevitable about our universe? What I'm coming to realize, and maybe I won't go into this too much detail here, what I'm coming to realize is that um, the, the answer to that is that there is, in a sense, a, a, a complete inevitability to many aspects of the universe. And there is in fact only one universe and it, it is the way it is and it has to be that way and there's no other possibility. But the view of the universe and our perception and description of the universe, even the fact that we talk about things like space and time and particles and all those kinds of things, those things are very contingent. They're very dependent on us. They are our particular way of describing the single thing that is this, the universe as it has to be, so to speak. And so if we say, well, what about those extraterrestrial aliens who might, who also live in the same universe, are their descriptions going to correspond to the descriptions that we have of the universe? And the answer is no. The answer is that even at the level of talking about, oh, the universe exists in space and there's, you know, and there's matter and there's gravity and things like that, there are, different views of the exact same thing that is our universe that will lead one to have a, a quite different story that one tells about how the universe works. And so in that sense, our physics is not inevitable. The universe is, I think, inevitable. But I think that the description that we make of it by in the way we would describe it in physics is, is dependent on, on the way we exist. And I can kind of start seeing that by just imagining what would it be like 
if uh, you know each of us was the size of a planet? What would it be like if each of us was the size of an atom? Um, how would our how would our way of describing the universe be different? It would be very different in those cases. In the in the case of you know you're the size of a planet, things about the speed of light being limited start really mattering. You don't get to for, for us normally. You know we look around, we see in the distance. Uh, the light that comes to us from the distance that we can see, if we're not looking out through a telescope into space, the light that's coming to us has arrived in some tiny fraction of a second, some, some, some amount of time, very short compared to the time it takes us to, to think about what we're seeing. So, so for us, it's sort of instantaneous, but if we were the size of planets or, or solar systems or whatever, you know, it could take hours for, for us to sort of know about what when we when we move our hand to know what happened, so to speak, and uh, depending on our sort of brain processing speed, it could be the case that it's like, well, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Did our finger move or not? Because our finger is is off, you know, in the position of Mars, which is twenty light minutes away, let's say, and it takes twenty minutes for for one to know what happened and so on. And so there are there are very different perceptions of the universe that one would have at these different, even at these different, for example, sizes and so on. All right, so that was a little bit on, on um, uh, inductive inference, inductive reasoning in science. So many interesting things here. Uh, all right, I'll do one that seems extremely simple. Uh, I'm always, you know, obviously I'm doing these things sort of spontaneously in real time. And uh, one of the things I've discovered in, uh, I learn a lot from trying to explain things in this kind of medium. And uh, one of the things I learn is that things that I immediately say, oh, I know the answer, I can explain that, often end up being the more complicated ones to actually, uh, actually explain. So there's a question here from uh, William saying, what is a number? Okay, that seems like a dead simple question, but let's see whether I can, can um, uh, try and talk a little bit about that. First question is, is it obvious that one should even talk in terms of numbers? Why, why do numbers exist? You know, you have numbers when you want to describe, for example, multiple copies of things. So for example, one thing that's sort of a, a, a fun, well, both thought experiment and real thing, people often say, oh, there are these, uh, you know, un, these, are the, these sort of uh, tribes living in the Amazon rainforest or something, who have languages that don't have anything, uh, any words for numbers bigger than, than, than three. Okay, so what's really going on there? And what I realized from talking to anthropologists and so on is in those languages, for example, what really is going on is there's a word for one of something, there's a word for a pair of things, and then there's just a word for lots of things. And the question is, when does one actually need to start saying five of something, seven of something, you know, 11 and a half of something? When is that needed? You know, let's say that you have a bunch of sheep. Well, you know, in many situations, you might just know every sheep and they each have names and you refer to them by the names of the sheep. At what point do you start having to say, I have 11 sheep? Well, it's a, it's a sort of stage or, or, or feature of, of, of society and civilization where you start saying, well, I'm gonna trade sheep. Each sheep is worth this amount. Each sheep is worth two goats or something. And, and then I'll trade them. And then I have to start using numbers to, to discuss that. So I don't think numbers, it's worth realizing that numbers 
are something that are somewhat dependent on our kind of particular way of, of, of setting up, you know, typical civilization and so on. And, you know, numbers became popular back in things like Babylonian times when people were starting to organize things into cities and so on. And people started having to have, you know, money as a medium of exchange and have to work out what is the area of this piece of land. And, you know, let me count out the number of things of barley or something that I'm going to get for this amount of money. Numbers became important there. The numbers that first became important were whole numbers. Um, then uh, there was sort of a lot of uh, question and confusion about what do fractional numbers mean. So, for example, in the Babylonian system, everything is in one sixtieths. So uh, and that's that's how we end up with 60 minutes in an hour, you know, and I guess probably also 60 seconds in a minute, although I don't know whether the Babylonians had seconds. Um, but uh, this idea that, you know, you've got a certain amount of something where you can have a fractional amount, it's 1 60th, 2 60th, 3 60th, and so on. When you start saying, well, what about the precise number, square root of two, the precise number, which when you multiply it by itself makes two, well, then you have a different kind of number. It's you know, we know that it's about 1.414 or whatever. Um, but that number, that square root of two number, how do, we, how do we work out what that number is? How do we think about that number? Uh, Pythagoras and, and friends got very confused about that for a while because they thought every number that was worth thinking about was a number that you could get as a ratio of two whole numbers, a rational number. And square root of two, they, they found out is not a number that can be formed as a ratio of two whole numbers. It's um, an irrational number that isn't, isn't a ratio of two whole numbers. And it was at first very confusing to them that, even, that such numbers should exist. What, what could such a number be? You know, is there, what is that thing that represents the square root of two and is, uh, but, and is, is a number, but you can't sort of get your hands on it. You can't say it's the ratio of these two whole numbers well, whole numbers we sort of think we can get our hands on because we can, we can just sort of count them out and so on. Well, in modern times, we represent numbers usually as decimals, like we'd say 1.414, et cetera. We have these decimal numbers. And we kind of are pretty familiar with how those work. But actually, it wasn't until the 1600s that people really started using things like decimal numbers with positional notation and so de decimals, fractional decimals and so on. And um, the, it was actually a very confusing idea. So for example, let me give you an example of why it's a confusing idea. Okay, so we have the number one, one point zero, 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 going on to infinity. Okay, that's a number, great. Okay, now let's consider the number point nine, 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 going on to infinity. Is that the same number? as 1.0000 going on to infinity or not. It's numerically equal to one. That number 0.9999999 is as close as we want. If that, if that sequence of nines goes off to infinity, that number basically is 1.000, but it isn't written the same way, but we have two numbers that are written differently. Well, are they really one number or are they two numbers? That's one example of a kind of a confusion, a thing that makes it not obvious what's going on with numbers when they're written as decimals like that. And you know, in, in general, the question of what, uh, what kind of thing we can, uh, we can consider to be a number 
is an interesting question. I mean, like what attributes should numbers have? For example, you might say, well, if we've got two numbers, better be the case that X plus Y is the same as Y plus X. You know, if you add two plus three is the same as three plus two, just a property of numbers, you might say. Anything that might be a, a self-respecting number should have that property that uh, uh, X plus Y is equal to Y plus X for any numbers X and Y. Well, is, that, is, is everything that you might consider a number have that property? Perhaps not. I'll give you an example. So this is a slightly uh, complicated example. It's the example of transfinite numbers. So it was invented by Georg Cantor in, I think, the 1880s. Um, so this is a, the following idea. So imagine that you count out numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and you go on, you keep going, you keep going forever, you keep counting numbers. Eventually, let's say, you've counted, you've counted, you've counted, you've counted forever, you get a number omega. Okay, now you say, but what happens if I go even further? Well, then I get a number omega plus one. Go even further, omega plus two. Go even further, omega plus omega. Go even further, omega times omega. And what, what Cantor realized is that there is a meaningful way in which you can talk about these transfinite numbers, these numbers where uh, the, the, the things I'm describing are transfinite ordinals, these numbers where you, you just keep counting forever and then you say, well, how do I take that? I kept counting forever and add more things to it. Well, one feature of transfinite numbers is that omega plus one is equal to omega. You keep counting forever, and then you count one more time. Well, it doesn't really matter you counted one more time. It's the same as just having counted forever, omega. But, um, uh, no, I'm getting this, I'm sorry. That, that's the wrong way around. That omega plus one is not equal to omega. but one plus omega, it's like you, you put down the one and then you go on counting forever. And the result of that should be considered as the same as just, I went on counting forever. So what that's saying is one plus omega is omega, but omega plus one is not equal to omega. So it's a case where, where X plus Y is not equal to Y plus X. Now you might say, that's not a real number. That's some kind of weird infinite thing. But many, for many other purposes, it's useful to think about these transfinite numbers as examples of number-like things. Actually, just recently, I, transfinite numbers have not had a great history of being sort of useful in the real world. I recently have had a real use for them, which we'll see how it pans out. Um, but it has to do with understanding, well, understanding the way that proofs work and understanding the way that infinite data structures work and all kinds of other things. But in any case, the... the um, Another thing that comes up with transfinite numbers, another feature of numbers is if you, yeah, this is an interesting feature of numbers. If you have a number, is there, and you represent the number in a certain way, if the number has a certain value, is there only one way to represent the number in a certain way? So I mentioned 0.99999 being the same as 1.000. That's a place where our usual decimal way of writing numbers has this sort of non- uh, non-canonical character, that there are multiple ways to write the same number. And you could say, well, I'm going to canonicalize, I'm going to make every number, I'm going to standardize every number. Things get trickier when you have numbers with square roots. So for example, when you have things like square root of two plus square root of three, that is the same, I can't do this, I have to, I have to use often language to, to work this out, but that's the same as some other, some other uh, combination of square roots and things. But in general, you'll have some big combination of square roots. In general, there may be many different ways 
to write down. You know, you might write uh, square root of two over two, or you might write one over square root of two. And it's not obvious which of the, those two things are, are numerically equal, but it's not obvious which of those forms should be considered the standard form. And it turns out there are plenty of situations uh, when, where there is no obvious canonical form for numbers constructed by these various techniques. So if numbers are made from, from adding together and multiplying together square roots and things like that, you can end up with that situation. Actually, there is a, there is a way of canonicalizing those. Um, as soon as you end up with uh, things like trigonometric functions in the picture, you're, you're out of that game. There isn't a, 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 stand, a way to canonicalize things that will always work. And in fact, here's an even worse thing to say. If you've got two numbers and they're written down as, you know, square root of two plus pi times e times whatever, you've got some other number written in some other form, and you ask the question, are these numbers equal? Okay, so it could be the case that you can plainly see they're equal. One of them is, uh, you know, pi squared, the other one is pi times pi. Great, those are equal. Um, but the thing which is an interesting mathematical fact is, in general, you can't tell whether two numbers written down that involve square roots and trigonometric functions, things like that, whether these two numbers that are written down are actually equal. You could try and work them out numerically, and you can say to 100 digits of precision, these numbers are equal. To 1,000 digits of precision, they're equal. Are they exactly equal? Are they the same number? Well, in order to tell that, you would have to make essentially mathematical transformations. You would have to do things like saying, Things like, you know, if you have sine of two times some number, that's the same as two times sine of the number times cosine of the number. Those kinds of things that are, that are exact mathematical transformations. And you might say, well, I've got these two numbers. Is there a chain of mathematical transformations that I can make that take me from one number to the other? Then that would prove that those two numbers are equal. Well, the problem is, and this is a consequence of Gödel's theorem and a bunch of other things, that, that there is no, no limit on how long that chain might need to be. It might be the case that these two numbers that are written down are in fact equal, but that chain, the minimal chain necessary to go from one number to the other is an arbitrary number of steps long. It might be a billion steps. You might have to go through, it's like doing a mathematical proof. You might have to go through all these different gyrations to show that these two numbers are equal. And in general, there just isn't an upper bound on how long that chain needs to be. So, so that's a sense in which numbers might be equal, but you don't know they're equal. So there are a lot of, lot of tricky things that can go on there. So that, that's a, um, uh, now, you know, by the way, some of these things about whether numbers are uh, properties of numbers. Let me give you another example. In a computer, there is this idea of so-called machine arithmetic. Personally, I actually think it's a pretty bad idea. I think a lot of kind of wrong things were done in the, in the late 1970s about how that was set up, but it's kind of the standard way computers work now. So when you have a number like, uh, I don't know, you're trying to represent uh, one third in a computer or two thirds in a computer, well, how does it actually get represented? It's more or less, it's 0.6666666. It's actually in binary, not in decimal, but uh, at least on most computers. Um, but um, then the question is, uh, how many digits do you actually store in the computer? And the point is this computer only stores a limited number of digits. It's usually about 53 digits in binary, something like that. Um, and that is, it's a so-called floating point number usually. So it stores the, the, uh, the number and then it stores times 10 to the power something or other that gives the scale of the number. 
So in any case, when you do that, you can ask questions like, when you store numbers to only a limited number of digits, is addition commutative in the sense that x plus y equals y plus x? Uh, well, it's not. Is it associative? Uh, you know, uh, brackets, parentheses, where parentheses go and plus signs don't matter. Uh, it's not. So in other words, some of these things which are features of um, uh, when you make this sort of finite precision arithmetic, are those things that you have in a computer, those machine numbers, are they in fact genuine numbers or are they some weird other thing? They're a little bit weird. I'll give you another example. If we have one third, so one third is decimal 0.33333, when a computer represents it, it's representing it in binary. So it's representing it just with zero and one digits. And so it's, I don't remember what a, a third is in binary. I should be able to work it out. 0 0.11, 0 0.101, 0.101, 0.101, something like that. I'm not sure. Um, in any case, the one of the features of that is when you, you might want to have the property that the thing that represents one third for you, when you multiply it by three, should be equal to one. Well, turns out that won't be the case. And when you truncate it to a finite number of limited number of digits, you can end up with a situation where uh, the thing you, that represents one third, you multiply it by three, it's 0.9999998, let's say, not exactly one. And um, in fact, for a while, people used to make computers, particularly for business applications that used uh, so-called binary coded decimal, which was kind of a weird hacky way of kind of packing decimal digits into triples of binary digits in order to avoid things like one third times three not being equal to one. But so machine arithmetic on computers is an example of where you're sort of thrust into the question of, you know, are those machine numbers really numbers? Do they have the properties that we expect of numbers and so on? There might be more to say about that, but that's a little bit of a um, uh, little bit on, on this question of what is a number? Um, well, there's a question here, a question here from memes of destruction. Would computer processing speed increase if we had a compendium of mathematical proofs? Okay, it's an interesting kind of question. So what do mathematical proofs tell us? They tell us certain, they, they tell us results about mathematics where in principle, if we knew the axioms of mathematics, we could go through and rework out those, those proofs ourselves. So in other words, if we're told certain facts about arithmetic, let's say, we could in principle go and work out everything we need to know about number theory and this and that and the other. But in practice, it's been centuries that people have been working out all those details of mathematics and they've been able to say, actually, if we go in this direction, uh, we can get this big complicated result, which we can write down and you don't have to repeat all of those steps. You just, here's the result, great, be happy. Well, and mathematics progresses by taking those results, those theorems people have proved, and saying, let's see what else we can prove by going by building on top of those theorems. Now, it's certainly not the case that we're exploring all possible mathematics. We're making these kind of highways of mathematics where we're going from a theorem we can prove to another theorem we can prove, and then that one lets us build another theorem, maybe better to call it a tower, of you know, where, the, where the various... Uh, bricks in the tower, these theorems we proved, and we can keep going and we keep going building on what we've already built. Um, if we say, okay, we actually want to know about this mathematics off in this way different direction. It's like, sorry, you're starting from scratch. You've got to start from the axioms and start proving things step by step. 
Okay, so there's a similar kind of question for computer programs. So if you write a program, you can, uh, it could be the case that you've written this whole big blob of code. And actually, somebody looking at that blob of code could say, you didn't need that whole blob of code. It's just, you know, X plus one. That whole blob of code you've written just turns into X plus one. That would be kind of a theorem about your code that says this whole big thing is just X plus one. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a function reverse that reverses the elements in a list. So it turns ABC into CBA. Okay, so if you say reverse of reverse of a list, that the result of that will be, you just get back the list you started from. It'll reverse it once, it'll re reverse the reverse that gets back to what you started from. So it's a theorem of programming that reverse of reverse of anything is the thing, okay? So you can imagine these kinds of things that are a little bit like mathematical theorems, but they're instead theorems about uh, uh, they're computational theorems about a programming language, a computational language, wh whatever. Um, and so you can imagine building up a library of those kinds of theorems about programs, which are analogous to, not quite the same as mathematical theorems. The, the, the world of mathematical theorems is, is quite divergent from most of what one will be interested in for computational theorems, but one can build up these kinds of computational theorems. And actually, when, when you compile code, in, uh, when, when you're taking code that you write in Wolfram language and it's getting compiled into some low level machine code or whatever, uh, what's happening is there are lots of those theorems that are getting used. There are lots of theorems that say, this thing will always be an integer. It, it could never turn into a, a pair of integers. It will always be an integer. So that means you can always represent it in the computer in this way. And that's a theorem, so to speak. And so what has to happen when you are trying to say, how could you, is it, is it good enough to just use a single integer to represent this whole thing in this computation? Well, you can prove the theorem that it is. Okay, so the question is, if we had a big library of those theorems, how successful would that make us in being able to, for example, even execute our code faster? Because if we could say, forget running this piece of code, there's just a theorem that says the answer is seven, then we don't have to run the piece of code, we just say the answer is seven. Okay, so here's the, here's the problem. The problem is, if the code was writing in the first, worth writing in the first place and worth running in the first place, then there can't be a theorem that shortcuts it. If the only way there could be a theorem that shortcuts it is if actually that code was sort of, well, you wrote it in a very elaborate way, but you didn't really need to write all that stuff. You could have just written this short thing here. Now, you can be in a situation where, yes, you could have written that short thing, but you don't know that. You, as you're thinking about it, you imagine it in this much more elaborate way, but actually it turns out that was, that was you didn't need to do all that stuff. It was actually really much simpler. So that, that's, a, um, uh, that, that's a sense in which one can imagine sort of a, 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 a computational theorem being useful. But, but in general, those things will be less useful than you think because it sort of wasn't right, worth writing the program if you can just jump ahead and say, this is what the answer will be. But there are some limited places where it's useful, particularly in compilation, where you're saying, does this program that I wrote fit into this thing that can be represented at a very low level on, on this computer? And that's the thing where if you have a theorem that says it works this way, you may be able to do that. And if you don't have that theorem, you won't be able to guarantee that you can do that. But uh, th this whole question of whether it's important to have a sort of library of mathematical theorems. I've been very interested in this. There are about 3 million theorems that um, uh, are um, 
uh, have been written down in sort of the history of human mathematics um, and published in papers in, in the history of human mathematics. And uh, I've been very interested in representing those theorems in a kind of computable way um, as, as something where when we build up mathematics, for example, we can start to say, has something like this theorem been seen before? Let me search in the set of theorems and identify that and keep going. That process is actually very difficult of, of curating theorems because we kind of have to have a very standardized way to represent these ideas of mathematics. And that's something we built a long way in that direction with Mathematica and, and in Wolfram language, um, but there's still further to go to represent sort of all the mathematics that's been done, particularly mathematics that was done after the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that, that, that sort of diverged a bit from mathematics that had been done before. Well, let's see. People are asking such elaborate questions here. Well, um, okay, there's a question from uh, Parmenides. What's the worst computer bug you've ever had? What was the simplest computer bug that you couldn't figure out? What is a bug and why do they happen? When you write a program and the program can do lots of things, it's basically impossible, both as a practical matter as a human and even theoretically, to know what could this program possibly do. And in certain, if, for example, you might have a program that's trying to do some particular kind of computation, and uh, you know that you tested it for a thousand inputs, worked great. Okay, now in real world, somebody is giving it a weird input. Oh, it breaks in some, some crazy way that you never could foresee. Actually, uh, someone was asking before about scientific induction. It's an interesting case. Uh, software and software quality assurance is an interesting case of that. Uh, when we build Wolfram Language, for example, we do lots of quality assurance. We do lots of testing. And so every time, you know, every day we're building new uh, sort of prototype versions of the language and every day millions and millions of tests are running on these, on these versions. And we're saying, did the results come back the same as they came back before? Are they, if they were correct before, are they still correct? And so on, that's often a very tricky thing to answer because there'll be details that might be different. You know, this pixel might be in a different place on the screen because something changed about the way the operating system did this or that, yet it's still correct, even though it isn't identical, so to speak, to what was before. But nevertheless, you can say, if the, if the tests work, does it mean that the code is correct? And then you can say, and, and, and obviously the answer is no, the sort of scientific induction answer would be, if you ran enough tests, well, then you know how the thing is going to behave, but it isn't true. And that's, in a sense, one essence of bugs is the fact that that isn't always true. Now, you can say people talk about uh, program verification. Can you prove the theorem that this program is always going to do the right thing? The problem with that is the definition of do the right thing is usually hard to make. If the definition of do the right thing is, oh, it doesn't start um, you know, scribbling on memory that it wasn't supposed to be allocated, uh, or does it, you know, could it ever run forever and never halt, those kinds of things. Those are definite things where you can imagine trying to prove these theorems. You might not be able to do it, but you can imagine trying to prove these theorems. But if the question is, does it give the right answer? Well, how do you define the right answer? The right answer, is probably pretty much defined by the piece of code you wrote. That is what you're trying to do. And so that's defining the right answer. 
So it tends to be the case that you get into this very circular situation of saying, how do you verify that the verifier is correct? And really the thing you're writing, the original program you're writing is the program that specifies what you want the program to do. Now, in, in practicality, there are plenty of situations where there can be a bug, which is obviously wrong. Like you're running your program and it crashes. You're running your operating system and it freezes. You're, you're trying to, you know, something is supposed to remember your login and it forgot it. These are things where, you know, it's pretty everyday to say that's wrong. And um, you, you have, um, so, but let me give you an example. I've been studying some abstract systems last week or two, uh, things called tag systems. I'll write something about them soon. And these systems have the property that they're very simple systems defined by very simple rules. And uh, the question is, you run these rules, you run these rules, and eventually the rules stop applying and the system just halts, okay? Well, the question is, does it always halt? And the answer is, I've got examples where it takes 202 billion steps and then it halts. I don't currently have any example where I can say, where I can prove that it doesn't halt, but I don't know whether it always does halt or not. That's a difficult thing to determine. And if I had a program where I'm just going to assume as a programmer, I'm just going to assume it halts. It's like, actually, I don't know that. And there probably is no proof of that. There may even theoretically be no proof of that. Um, there could always be an escapee, a, a kind of a version of the input where it won't in fact halt. So that would be an example of a, a very nasty, insidious kind of bug if I made the assumption that it was always going to halt. But as a practical matter, well, let's see. I mean, uh, the... When I write code in Wolfram language, which I do every day, um, I would say that that sort of bugs are not as common as they might be, partly because what I tend to do is because a language is a symbolic language, it means you can take apart any program into its component parts, and those parts can run perfectly well. It's not going to say, you know, if you have a low-level programming language and you take a lump of code out of the middle of a program, you have, to, you have to build a whole harness to run that piece of code. If you have a symbolic language, then any piece of code just takes symbolic expressions as input and gives symbolic expressions as output. So you can take any subpart of a, of, a, of a program and expect it to run separately. And so it's much easier to debug things in that situation. And it makes it, uh, now you, you end up writing more ambitious programs, but still my experience tends to be that when I'm writing Wolf language code, it's not super hard to debug. Um, because I can like take pieces out and uh, and so on and and just see what they do and I can put sort of diagnostic things in to make sure it's doing what it should be doing and so on. The places where things get much more difficult to debug when you're dealing with computer systems and when you're dealing with particularly things where there are multiple computers involved in sort of orchestrating together making things happen. So, for example, in cloud computing, you know, in our Wolfram Cloud, for example, that's a large number of computers. Um, and they're all kind of working together to deliver results to, to users and so on. And there, there can be very complicated and insidious bugs. So there's one that I wrote about a few years ago, actually, that was um, a bug that um, uh, you make a request to the cloud. Usually it works very fast, but sometimes it's really dog slow. Used to be the case. Okay, what's going on? What's going on? Well, the team was working on this. They looked at it for ages and it's just, we can't figure out what's going on. Okay, so I eventually decided I better look at this thing. So I started looking at it and I started plotting 
you know, you make a million requests, some fraction of them are slow. Uh, let's plot out both when the slow requests happen and how slow are the slow requests. So I discovered this really weird thing. I don't remember the numbers anymore, but, but um, uh, you know, when it was slow, when it was fast, it happened in 50 milliseconds. When it was slow, it took 200 milliseconds, let's say. But sometimes it also took 400 milliseconds. And sometimes, even more rarely, it took 600 milliseconds. So the question was, how could there be something where it, um, oh, actually, the other thing was, it was quite common for it to take 200 milliseconds. But sometimes it only took 50 milliseconds. So that right there is a tremendous clue. Because if you're asking a computer to do something, usually it takes 200 milliseconds, but just sometimes it happens in a quarter of that time, you know there's 150 milliseconds of time wasting going on. Because otherwise, for it to even be possible for the computer to answer you in 50 milliseconds, that has to be something the computer can do. So, but in any case, the most bizarre thing was that the, the delays were quantized. It was either 200 milliseconds, 400, 600, 800 milliseconds. They were in lumps of 200 milliseconds. I, I'm not sure if I remember correctly the 200 milliseconds, but let's, let's use that for the sake of this, this description. But um, so it's like, what on earth is going on here? And uh, so, uh, well, it turned out trying to remember all the details of this, but turned out I started tracing down exactly what was happening. Where was the slowdown happening? What program was actually running when the computer was, was taking these 200 milliseconds and so on. It turned out to be inside the Linux kernel, kernel of the Linux operating system. It turned out to be in little pieces of code that have to do with the device drivers, the Linux operating system kernel. Um, it was deep in the low level sort of uh, nervous system of the computer. It wasn't something, it wasn't like, oh, that's code I wrote. You know, it must be, you know, I made a mistake. It was deep in the low level code of the operating system. So like, how could this be happening? Well, I, I have to say, I asked um, friends of mine who, who work on sort of low level operating system things and they said, oh yeah, the, the device drivers in Linux, they're terrible. You know, it's like, but that's the most common operating system used in the world. How can you say they're terrible? Well, it's just an open source operating system. It's, it's not very good, but whatever. But that, that's, a, that's, a, um, that's just one of the funny things that happens in the world. But in any case, the point was, this was a very well-trafficked piece of code and there was something going wrong with it. In the end, it turned out, oh, I, I went through a whole chain of debugging of whether it was to do with file system access, whether it was to do with all kinds of other things. It turned out to be a stupid problem that some other part of our infrastructure was sending all kinds of interrupts into the operating system, asking it to do other things. And the operating system was like, oh, let me look at that interrupt. Oh, let me look at that interrupt. And it was wasting time doing that and wasn't sort of concentrating on the task that had actually been given. But that was a, I mean, that took a good couple of days to, maybe a day or two to debug. Once, once one had gone in and really tried to do sort of data science saying, let's look at billions of queries and see what's happening and so on. I mean, I, I could tell you many, many, many other debugging stories. I would say most of the debugging stories that revolve around me, are, it gets to me when, when it's really been a nasty bug and it's taken months and people have been very confused. And eventually I say, as a very, uh, uh, I would say at some level, ultimately hands-on CEO, it's like, let me, let me see if I can actually understand what's going on. Um, I could tell you one other story like that of um, uh, more recent, a couple of months ago. Uh, again, something to do with our network connectivity. Um, and uh, 
there was, we could tell that certain network accesses were slow and it was affecting a bunch of our cloud infrastructure. And it's like, what's going on? And, and people are saying, well, some of our network accesses are really slow and uh, some of them aren't even connecting at all, but some of them are really slow. And it's like, we don't know what's happening. This is some kind of connection that's flapping and it's, you know, sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not working, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That one took a few hours to debug, but that one, what I eventually noticed is, let's just take all of these queries that, and see, you know, we got a query, it's going to this particular IP address, uh, this particular place on the internet. We got another query, it's going to this particular place on the internet. Which of these queries are slow and which are fast? Let's just get a bucket of thousands, millions of these queries. And let's just see if we can tell what's the difference. Is, the, are there, is it consistent? The ones going to a particular uh, IP address are slow and ones going to other IP addresses are fast. So it turned out we discovered that it was a problem with the uh, way that an, a very upstream internet service provider was passing traffic to another large internet service provider only, but just one particular provider. And it, it, all the other things went through just fine, but with that one particular provider, the, it was blocking it for some reason, or it was, it was incorrectly connected. And so it looked like, well, most queries are going just fine, but some are not working. Turned out it was a very consistent set that weren't working, but it wasn't quite as consistent as you might've thought because some of these places that the queries were going to had multiple different exposure points on the, on the internet. And so it, they could go through different paths and so on. But in any case, that was, a, that was an example. But, but usually, you know, I would say that, that um, uh, these kinds of bugs in computer systems, these are complicated. And, you know, my observation is, that solving them, it's a, a big part of the story is use kind of data science type methods, use, use computation to solve these bugs, take in large amounts of data, actually analyze it, make graphs, plot out things. Don't just try and do the thing that people so often do of say, let's look at the log file. Let's read through 10,000 log messages and see if we notice something going on. Us humans are not that good at that. You know, have a computer do it if necessary. And I've done this too use natural language processing or use various kinds of machine learning on log files to go and figure out where are the anomalous pieces of these log files, can you figure out what's happening? And there's a decent chance you'll succeed at doing that. But those are some kinds of things. I mean, I, I would say there's one bug right now that uh, we're probably gonna fix because we have some very old hardware that we're using for some of our services. Um, and we're probably gonna just fix it by buying new hardware. Um, but uh, there's a bug where certain kinds of process restarts are running out of memory, or at least they report that they're running out of memory. But when we look at how much memory they have, they seem to have enough memory. And that's one where I've been telling the team, uh, you know, this is again, just go look inside the operating system. You can go read the code of the operating system and say, but, but, you know, but we don't really want to do that. But look, we can see there are, there are 10 places where this particular message that we are getting can be generated. You might think, oh, if you can read the code of the operating system, just instrument them to see what's happening. It's vastly more complicated than that, unfortunately. And it's not, it's not so clear what's going on. But this is a case where, where it's like, we'd, we'd kind of like to debug this, but in the end, it's probably not worth it because it's, we need to buy new hardware anyway. And the new hardware will almost certainly make this problem go away. Another, another type of problem, oh, I could talk about many of these. So, so here's an example of a, of a type of issue that's pretty complicated, is you have, let's say you have a thousand computers and you have zillions of people who are trying to make requests of those computers, 
request comes in, you have to say, okay, computer number 217 is free right now. Let's send the request to that computer. Okay, um, another request comes in, another computer is free. Let's send the request to that computer. Okay, let's say most of the computers are working on something and you want to know can, which computer should you queue up a request to? To which, which computer should you, if, if you're sending successive requests to different computers, which ones should you send them to? That's a, a problem of so-called load balancing. You don't want kind of, uh, uh, well, it's also relevant if some of these computers are connected to the same memory subsystems, connected to the same networks and so on. You don't want to sort of make this particular set of computers really, really busy while these other ones over here have nothing to do. You want to sort of spread the load over these different computers. So there's a, a complicated kind of issue of load balancing of how do, you, how do you send successive requests to different computers. And so there are different strategies, like least recently used might be a strategy, which is to say, okay, the request that comes in, send it to the computer that was least recently sent a request. The other thing you might do is to say, uh, well, which computers have finished which computers are, are almost finished with the requests that they're running right now, so we can queue up a new request to that computer? Well, the problem with that is, depends on what kind of requests they're dealing with, because maybe those requests, let's say real case for us, are Wolfram Alpha queries. Wolfram Alpha queries, the query might be a really easy one to answer, but it might be really complicated to answer. So it's very hard to know how long that request is actually gonna take. So if you get queued up behind some request that's gonna take five seconds, you're in bad shape because your request is going to be is going to be waiting for five seconds to be done. So it's kind of a complicated thing to figure out the strategy of how you should do this kind of load balancing, particularly when you have these very variable and very unpredictable amounts of time that will be spent on different uh, different requests. And so that's a place where oh, we've had all kinds of issues in in figuring out the optimal way to do load balancing. I'm afraid the main result of theoretical load balancing uh, discussions is. Uh, any fanciness isn't gonna help you. Anything you do where you're trying to be very fancy about predicting this and that and the other, in the end, sort of computational irreducibility bites you. And in the end, just the, the, the kind of most simple-minded uh, approaches tend to be the most robust. And, and that's the thing we've actually discovered in practice um, uh, more often than we might like. Let's see. There's a question here from Red Lantern. How quickly is technology advancing at the moment is science reliable in the grand scheme of things? Okay, this question about how quickly technology is advancing. It's often fun for me to talk to friends of mine in technology industry and so on. And some people are like, there's a singularity. Technology is advancing faster and faster and faster. And, you know, it's all exponential and so on. And then there are other people who are saying, I haven't heard a new idea in years. So how can both these things be true? Well, I think one point is, that what tends to happen in the advance of technology, as in science, is that new, some new methodology typically is invented, some new kind of direction is, is defined. And then a lot of stuff happens in that direction for a certain period of time. You know, machine learning starts to be real. Okay, for a decade, really interesting things get figured out there. You know, computer graphics starts to be good. For a decade, really interesting things get figured out. There's lots of visible progress. You know, the idea of social networks gets developed. There's lots of progress there for a certain period of time. The idea of laser printers gets, gets invented. There's lots of progress for a certain period of time. But if you ask, if you say, given 
the areas that you already know about, how much progress is there? The answer is, by the time you know about it, and particularly if everybody knows about it, there probably isn't that much progress that's going to happen because it's kind of something where the, you know, it's had its five or 10 years of sort of rapid progress from this sort of methodological advance. And so you, um, uh, you really, uh, you, you, you end up, it ends up seeming like if you say, let me take this set of things that I already know kind of what they are and then say, is there lots of progress in those? Well, the answer might be not really. The progress happens because new things are invented that are things that were quite different from the things you already defined. So a very typical thing is there'll be some domain. The domain will develop to a certain point. People will say, we really want to you know, recognize progress in this domain. Let's set up a prize for this particular domain. You know, the best physics, the best uh, you know, social network, the best whatever. Okay, pretty much I think it's a fair statement that as soon as there's a prize for something, the most fertile period is probably over. Because as soon as you can bucket it to the point where you say there's this definite thing and there's stuff happening and yeah, there's incremental progress happening, but you know, the places where it's really gonna look dramatic and really exciting are the and really different, really unexpected, real progress happening are the places where there wasn't a prize set up yet because nobody even thought that was a thing yet. So so I think that what, we, what one sees is there's sort of a lots of, uh, when, when you define progress in a particular way, then inevitably it tends to slow down. If you're sort of open to progress can be sort of anything, and it may even be a different definition of what we mean by progress, then yes, there's sort of an infinite frontier of possible things to discover and invent, and it looks fast. And, you know, I would say that in my, you know, I've been, sort of paying attention to technology for, oh gosh, probably 50 years now. And um, in, in um, uh, and there are things where it's like, wow, this is happening very quickly. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're still at this stage. You know, 40 years ago, we were at a stage just only a tiny bit before that. So I think the, um, you know, there, there are particular areas where there will be, you know, no doubt, rapid advances in technology and others where they won't be. I mean, like, for instance, I don't know, uh, you know, smartphones, you know, th there was a period of rapid advance. And then it's like, do I really need a new phone? Do I really need a bigger camera? You know, laptop computers, you know, do I really need that, that extra little twiddle? I don't know. It's, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's dramatic progress, but at the beginning, it was certainly dramatic progress. So I think this is something one can expect to see. And if, one, if one's picking a particular domain, the thing may get worked out and there may be only incremental progress. If one is sort of open to all possibilities, then, it, then things will tend to look like there's, there's more and faster progress. Um, okay, a question from Adit. Says, um, I'm 16, reasonably intelligent, this person says but nowhere even close to genius. Hard to know. I lack the self-belief to achieve my dream very successful career in AI. I feel I'm not smart enough. I feel that all people there in the community are geniuses and I feel like I cannot make it so. How is it possible to overcome this kind of self-doubt? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, uh, you know, there are lots of different ways to succeed, make progress, discover things, invent things, whatever else. And I think one of the things 
you know, different people have different kinds of skills and different ways of doing things. Some people, the best thing for them is sit by themselves and try and figure stuff out. Okay, they'll come up with something great. Um, maybe uh, for other people, it's like be part of some team, be maybe even be the leader of the team. It's like, you're not very good at the actual mechanics of making the thing work, but you're pretty good at figuring out what should be done. And, you know, and then if you can work with other people to actually actualize what you're talking about, then everything works well. I think that sort of part of the, the first step in, you know, doing something where you achieve some something you're excited about. And by the way, the kinds of things that different people are excited about may be completely different. And it may be that somebody's, I really want that achievement is somebody else's, I couldn't care less about that and vice versa. Um, so, you know, if the, if the achievement you want is to discover something interesting about, let's say AI, what do you mean by interesting? Do you mean lots of people are gonna use it? Do you mean, it's going to be something that is going to be intellectual progress that academic papers get written about? Do you mean it's going to be some different kind of thing where, where you know, that there, there are different definitions of success? And in terms of what it takes to, to, to achieve those different definitions of success, there are also typically many paths to those things. And I think that the, the number one issue is sort of defining what the objective is. In other words, if, if you say, I have this great idea and you know, I have this great thing that I want to achieve. Then it's like, okay, how do you take the steps to achieve that? But even just this act of saying, I've got this great thing I want to achieve and defining that thing, that's a very important step. And if you can do that, you're already kind of way ahead because just knowing, well, if I do this, I do this, I do this, then I'm gonna make a great discovery or whatever. It's just not really the way that, you know, it's not sort of a procedure. There's not a kind of set sequence of steps that people take to get to the point where they can do something sort of unexpected and, um, uh, and, and something that, that, uh, that they consider to be an exciting achievement. So I, I think I'm, I would tend to feel that, um, uh, well, also there's this question of, um, uh, uh, you, you mentioned that, um, sort of everybody in the community around you seems to be sort of a genius and, and how do you fit into this? Uh, I think that is, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure that the comparison of people in that way is particularly productive. And one of the things I've noticed, I suppose um, some parts of the world, maybe Silicon Valley is a particularly bad example of this uh, at different times in its history is, uh, you know, people will always, make themselves out to be a lot more geniusy than perhaps they really are. It's like, it's like, let's use a complicated word when a simple word would work just fine, but it makes it sound more geniusy if we use a complicated word and then the person you're talking to doesn't know what you're talking about. Um, and, and sometimes that, that's usually, uh, in my observation, usually, but not always a bad sign. I mean, there are people uh, where you talk to them and they only talk in very complicated words and it's like blah 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 and it's like how can this be something real and interesting and you pick it apart and you realize this person is pretty bad at explaining things but what they're saying is really very interesting and that can happen um but uh, it's it's i think uh, you know it's not just because there are fancy words me used means doesn't mean that 
the thing being talked about is fancier, so to speak. And just because there are simple words being used doesn't mean that the thing that's being talked about is necessarily sort of mundane and simple. And I think um, uh, somehow my observation is that, that um, uh, well, since I like to work in a lot of different kinds of fields, I am constantly in this situation of feeling like uh, there are lots of people in this field who are a lot smarter about this field than I am. Uh, you know, how can I possibly make progress in this field? Except somehow I managed to do it a whole bunch of times. How can that be? Well, uh, what are some, some examples of, of, of things that happen? One thing is the experts in some particular area, they tend to know, they know exactly what to do. And they're in this path and they're, they're running around and they know what to do because they're experts. And, but they're not looking at some bigger question some something that maybe comes from outside their field, that suddenly it, it doesn't work to just make that little sort of micro path. There's suddenly this other thing that you can make progress with. And you don't feel as smart as the people who are experts in that field because they're telling you all these complicated things about this field and what about this? And you know, you're thinking about this. Well, surely you can't be able to do that because of this footnote that says this and that and the other thing. And it's, it's like uh, you could come to the conclusion that, no, 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 it's hopeless. I can't possibly do anything in that area. But actually, somehow it often seems to work out just great. And I think, you know, it is worth knowing a certain amount about these areas. But if you drill too deep and you get too involved in, oh, the minutiae and what about this, what about that, you can easily lose sight of whatever big picture you potentially can, can, can get to. But I think that um, a thing that, that's worth realizing is, particularly if you try to work in, in a sequence of different fields and you try and make contributions in different areas, uh, I, I can say, at least from my own experience, one is continually finding oneself pretty humbled by, by the kinds of things that people in those fields already know. Uh, like, for example, I mentioned earlier here that I've been thinking a little bit about economics recently, and I don't really know anything about economics. And I'm, you know, I've, I've sort of heard about it for years, and I've kind of Oh, and lots of people who've been distinguished in that field. And I've, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of looked at the pictures and the textbooks and I've kind of um, uh, seen people use our technology to do things in economics, but I don't really know economics in the sense that, you know, if I was uh, doing some, you know, standardized exam about it, I doubt I would, uh, I doubt, I, I think there'd be plenty of questions where I wouldn't know the answer. Um, and, and yet, how can I be thinking about doing something that, might have significance in that field. Well, uh, I kind of, uh, I think the, uh, maybe it's just pure, you know, confidence or arrogance that one can do this, except that it has worked for me many times. So I don't think it's, uh, uh, it's completely a misplaced idea. But I think the, the point is that, uh, you know, yes, there will con constantly be people who are experts, things to know that you don't know. The question is, can you define what your objective is well enough and at least learn things enough along the path that you need to go on that you can be successful in, in achieving that path. And I, I think, um, um, uh, I mean, in terms of the, the, the personal question of, of how do you conclude that you can do it versus not, I, I think that ends up being a thing that comes mostly from, from inside one. And I've been fortunate in my life that I've I worked on a bunch of different things. I started out doing sort of, things when I was pretty young that were reasonably successful. 
And, uh, you know, I started writing physics papers and things like that when I was a teenager. And, um, uh, you know, they, they, were, they worked out just fine. And having had certain successes, you build confidence to say things like what I'm saying now, which is I can just sort of walk into this area uh, of economics, let's say, which I know, you know, little about and make a useful contribution, so to speak. Now, you know, you, you kind of build up after probably decades to that level of either confidence or arrogance, depending on how you look at it. Um, and I'm not sure that that's, that's the place you start. And I think that a good place to start is, you know, you pick something that's a pretty modest objective. And perhaps you pick something which is out of the mainstream of, oh, everybody's working on AI and they're trying to solve this problem and that problem. Well, pick a problem that seems like it's a, it's a little problem off on the corner here that isn't something where there's thousands of people working on that. And there's a, you know, don't pick the problem of, for example, a robot grasping at something, which is a very difficult kind of AI-like problem because zillions of people are working on that. You know, if you pick a problem that's a, a little tiny sub-problem of that, that's still kind of interesting, like, you know, how do you pick a particular kind of fruit or something? You know, how do you make a robotic manipulator that picks a particular kind of fruit? A bad example, but, but um, something like that. And, and, you know, you kind of get yourself sort of completely around that particular thing, which perhaps nobody else cares about right now, and then go solve it. And that kind of builds you a certain amount of confidence in, yes, I can actually solve these things. And then you go for the next thing and the next thing and so on. The issue of solving things which are sort of out of the main, uh, out of the, the sort of main, main path, main track, is sometimes you'll solve those things and you'll be very satisfied. Yes, I solved it. I come up with this really great solution. Oops, nobody cares about this. Well, then you have to convince people they should care or you just take it as something where it's like, well, I figured this out. I learned something from doing this. I got satisfaction out of doing it. Uh, it's like I put it in this little, you know, wrap it up, tie, tie a bow, uh, put it, you know, tie it in a bow and, uh, and put it aside, so to speak, and then go on to the next you know, perhaps bigger thing. Anyway, that that's a um, uh, uh, um, that that would be uh, my my comment. I, I think the the concept of um, uh, you know it's a very personality dependent thing. If you say I'm going to set myself up for this thing, I'm going to try and do it, um, and uh, you know maybe it's too hard. And uh, if you say, well, maybe I'm going to fail, you keep looking down. You keep saying, maybe I'm going to fall. The chance of falling is much higher. I think many people, like myself, for example, who work on big, complicated projects, you know, it's like, this thing isn't going to fail. I don't even have to think about it failing. It's, it's going to succeed. And, you know, by golly, maybe the original thing that I was originally hoping might happen doesn't actually happen. But, you know but it ends up being the case that one navigates to something which is a good, uh, a good result. And I think that the, um, uh, the thing that, um, uh, so, it, so that this kind of, but what if I fail type thing tends to be rather, uh, it's like, just, just pick something where you're pretty confident. You know, even if it's small, you, you, you can get yourself to the point where you're pretty confident you can do it and then just try doing it. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, you just have to think about, Okay, if you fail, you try and do some project and the project doesn't work out. Maybe you didn't even tell anybody about the project. Okay, it's a pity it didn't work out, but it's not terribly embarrassing. It's not, um, there's not, uh, uh, you know, maybe you wasted a little bit of time. Maybe you learned something doing it. It doesn't have a high cost. 
Um, so I think it's it's one of these things where where um, you know if you can define what you want to do and it's kind of like like just try doing something now. Now you know I, I will say that if you say okay I'm going to build a general AI I'm going to solve the problem of artificial intelligence and things that's probably not a great problem to to work on. I mean if you if you think I mean I would pick a something a more specific subproblem that is one that hasn't necessarily been worked on a lot and i would kind of you know get all over that problem and you know just a sort of thing i'm i'm going to sit and invent you know the great new theory of everything it's kind of not the way it works it's kind of when you when you imagine i mean you know you you have to when you when you work on big projects you end up making many sub goals for those projects and if you're not experienced at doing really big projects, it's not a great idea to just say, I'm gonna do this huge project from the beginning. Better idea to pick a smaller project where you can readily sort of see your way to, to where you want to get to. And, and um, it's, uh, I mean, you know, in, in, in my efforts, for example, in finding fundamental theory of physics, okay? That wasn't a thing where I sat down when I was, you know, I, I was thinking about things like that when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't sitting down with a blank sheet of paper would have been paper in those days saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write down the fundamental theory of physics. I didn't expect that was going to work. Instead, it's sort of a, a, you know, a 40 year journey that involves doing many specific concrete things and then realizing, Oh, there's this particular piece of progress that can be made and it has these consequences. Let's go for that. Oh, there's this particular thing that can be done. Let's go for that. And I think sort of being concrete in these goals is important, defining kind of a, you know, defining the goals, as I say, I think is, is the most important thing. Figuring out the path by which you get to the goals is typically easier than defining the goals. But don't imagine that the goals should be, you know, solve the general AI problem starting from a blank sheet of paper. That's not, that's not the right kind of goal. Pick a goal that is much more honest. And if, if you're going to make a mistake in picking the goals, make the mistake on being too modest in the goals. You know, have something that's really, you know, you're like, I know I can do this. It's only going to take me a week. And, you know, I really know rather than I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm just imagining it, so to speak. Um, I think that's that would be my suggestion. All right. Well, lots of interesting questions um, left over for another time. Um, and uh, uh, thank you for the diversity of topics and questions you've been asking. Um, I have lots of fun talking about these kinds of things. Um, and uh, uh, I hope, uh, hope you find this interesting. And um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us and see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.